Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Um, welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. Before I knew today's guest, Stacey Duguid, I thought she was a bit scary, fierce in all the ways. And then I got to know her when I was still editor of Red Magazine and she was working on Elle. And I discovered that she wasn't, because Stacey like so many of us, is just exceptionally good at putting on the front. And that front served her really well. Until it didn't. She was 45 when everything collapsed. Or more accurately, she put a grenade under it. The thing she'd been trained to want ever since she was tiny. The house, the husband, the children, the career... The happy ever after, all blown to smithereens. Now 49, a single mum and a successful journalist. You might have seen her dating columns in The Telegraph. She is very much back from the brink and has written In Pursuit of Happiness. It's the most brilliant book about midlife collapse and ultimately recovery. And I just know I'm a hundred million percent certain. Just trust me, you are going to love it. I'm no longer lonely in my own skin. And that is fucking huge. As candid in person as she is in print, Stacey talks frankly about the pain of divorce, searching for a self that you've never met, self-blame, hotness syndrome. You'll find out what that is in a minute. Perimenopause mayhem. And I mean mayhem, all caps making peace with her mother, learning to take a breath, rediscovering her creativity, midlife sexuality, and, drumroll, toyboywarehouse.com. You really go there, don't you? Really go there. Did you, is that something you needed to do? I just sort of wrote it as it, flowed there was so much of it I didn't use because I mean I think I wrote probably 800 pages there was so much processing going on I don't imagine poor poor editors (laughs) (laughs) nah that's what they're paid for (laughs) there was so much you know everyone says oh was it cathartic or you know no it wasn't were you processing no I wasn't well I was processing yes but I had had a lot of therapy during which time you know five years I assumed that I had got over the worst you know clearly um there was something still locked away um and a lot of that is not in the book so in lots of ways I really do go there but in lots of ways I also keep a huge part of me back if that makes sense. So I go there as far as I could physically go, emotionally go rather, but then I've, I've kept a whole chunk back. So I don't feel, I do feel, feel quite vulnerable this week after a lot of the press came out, but I, I do, I don't feel as vulnerable as, I mean, the whole story, obviously we've all got the story behind the story, haven't we? Yeah, totally. And then there's also this, the stuff you can't say. And I was, 
I was thinking that when I was reading it. Right. It was really hard not to, knowing you a bit, I mean, not knowing you intimately in the right. way that your girlfriends do, but knowing you a bit was really hard to read without kind of thinking, hmm, there's a whole, there's something else there and there's right. something else going on there. But it's like, it's like, it's one thing living it and then there's another world of pain writing it all down but then you know you're at the point now of seeing it all over the internet and the papers how's that (laughs) (laughs) just quickly back to well first of all I was relieved to see you even liked it thank god seeing it just seeing it all over the internet and seeing it all out there I do feel quite naked yeah I feel like someone's sort of Strip me bare and I'm walking through Oxford. I'm walking down Regent Street. Yeah, never Oxford Street, darling. I'd never Oxford Street. It's, <laughs> it's just full of sweet shops now. <laughs> it's it's like, though, I think the thing is, if you've got like a publicish job, like you work in a magazine, you think you're used to people critiquing everything you do anyway. And then especially when you've got social media, you think, you know, people can get hold of you and they can tell you they think your hair's shit. Well, that's probably just me. Or that they think you've done a crap job or that job or they hate that issue. But when you put a, nothing prepares you for putting a book out. No, no. Especially something this personal. Yeah. No, no, nothing can prepare you for that. I was relieved to finish it because it's like the biggest deadline of your life. You just have to have to get it done. And then there's a part of you that it just thinks, okay, this it'll all be fine once this bit's over. And then actually what I hadn't really considered was the, the bit after. So, you know, actually this bit when it comes out. Yeah, I'm used to people critiquing, you know, and saying stupid things about my hair or whatever. We're just, you know, whatever. Have I had plastic surgery or, you know, do I use Botox? Like that's just, that's just what happens across social media and all over, you know, like you and I both worked on women's magazines. We know what it's like. You know, this, this piece of work, I put, I put my whole soul into it. I put my entire being into it. So it's not just the story itself. It's like all of the effort that I put into it, that seven months of real, just, you know, it takes, it takes stamina to write like, you know, a book in seven months. It takes a lot of discipline. I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to do is sort of step back and look at it now and go, this is now a product and I've made it. And just like I would have done at Elle magazine or when I've, you know, worked at, for brands, I've now got to promote this product. And I've had to sort of almost like sever the, the umbilical mm. cord from it. But no, nothing prepares you for something that, you know, as personal as a memoir coming out and the kind of reaction to it of course you can't control that you know this week I have felt quite low and actually um my friend Kate Spicer called me last night and she said you okay and I said no I just feel a bit I feel a bit down Mm. I feel a bit I feel vulnerable I feel down I feel actually a bit mad I mean I hadn't had a shower I've been like I've been working on masses of deadlines I've been up since you know four hours already this morning writing um who are you Stacey Dugan I don't know who I am anymore Actually, I haven't. I've just come out of Vauxhall. I just came out of a nightclub. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> can yeah. Imagine. yeah, it's that, that sort of preparation. How can anyone tell you? Or how can no. you can't prepare for that kind of fallout? And no, of course, I don't read comments on things. Obviously, my own Instagram, yes, but not on newspaper articles. Oh, God, no, don't go below the line. But I, I don't really want to dwell on all the bad stuff, partly because that's what everybody else has dwelt on because it's you but I think because for the the listeners I think what's going to really interest them is that well you and I have talked about this before that's like so many women get to this stage of your your, their life and I'm like seven or eight years older than you but their mid-40s I think their mid-40s through maybe their 50s where they just go what the fuck and they Mm. either put a bomb under a bit of it, they put a bomb under all of it, or they want to put a bomb under it but can't for various reasons, like whatever their reasons Mm. are. 
and I certainly think all the therapy you've had, which I'll ask you about in a minute, has will have played a big part in your in that that. So I want to talk about the kind of the recovery and where you are now a lot because I think that will really interest people. But before we do, we are going to like we just can touch on the bad stuff because people need to understand. People who haven't read the book need to understand kind of why you put the bomb under your life as. Well, you say you put your grenade under your life, but I wonder, I, I wonder whether you did because one of the things I noticed in the book is that you blame yourself for absolutely everything. And now I don't know, well, I know you, so I know that's a thing, but I don't know whether that's like a legal thing. The publishers basically said you have to take all the blame. Um, <laughs> or I'm interested that you do that because the way I read it, is yes, you had a very brief affair with someone that you fancied at school, coincidentally. This is a very long question, but it is going somewhere. But then your ex woke you up in the middle of the night and said, I found the text. I've sent them to my lawyer. We're getting divorced. So who put the bomb under it? Yeah, I know. And actually, um, no. So first of all, the publishers did not tell me to take all the blame. That's just my um, default setting. Mm. Take the blame, take the blame. It's your fault. It's your fault. Which has been, a, you know, taken a lot of untangling in therapy, which when hopefully when the listeners read the book, they'll understand comes from a place of not imperfect, not terrible childhood, but, you know, a kind of difficult start. So, you know, there's a lot of science around the first three years of a child's life is the most important in terms of developmental and what what can you pin it on though I can pin it on that actually I can are we talking about the bomb are we talking about so I'm going to get into the bomb because I think that's a really interesting question who done it sort of thing but but the blame but let's your tendency to take the blame that comes from when you were little doesn't it it comes from when I was little it comes from um being in an environment between the age of, you know, naught and three that was quite volatile. And so as a kind of way of protecting myself, I, all children, lots and lots of children tend to internalize their parents' divorce or their parents arguing as their, their fault. It's my fault. They don't love each other. You know, and that's just, a, it's quite a common thing. Children, around the age of six or seven, think that they can fix their parents' marriage in a kind of superhero way. I remember my daughter saying it to me, and it actually reminded me of how I used to feel. You know, she said, is this my fault? And I said, no, it's not your fault. And you're a little girl, and and you have a lot of power, but you don't have that much power. Mm. You don't have the power to control your parents' divorce. Okay, That's the thing, isn't it? Because it's your fault, you can fix it. Yeah, if it's your fault, you can do something about it, which is, you know, quite clever. It's a way of protecting yourself. So when it's, so it spent my life feeling like it's my fault. Now, with regards to the bomb, I feel like it, I I describe it as a kind of explosion because of the way that maybe I, well, because not maybe, because of the way I dealt with the situation. I felt like it was as though I made a bad situation I can hear my therapist on my shoulder. I know, I can hear you too. I or we. It was a bad situation that triggered something within me from my childhood. Remember, remember, we're talking 2018 and I hadn't had therapy. It triggered something with my abandonment. It, It triggered all sorts of stuff. And all of that exploded within me. And that is the bomb that went off. The bomb within me. The 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 affair it's not it wasn't it was a fling it was a one night thing with a school friend uh old school friend that ends I mean you, the bit in the book we are in the hotel room together is just horrible and it was mm. a horrible experience I've never spoken about it before um that bit does actually feel quite cathartic to speak about because I did feel ridiculous I felt oh my god and it all goes terribly wrong after some class A drugs are consumed and he calls a sex worker. Anyway, you have to read the rest. <laughs> but the bomb that was detonated, I felt, I felt as if I had exploded internally because I couldn't cope with the situation around me. I wanted to run, but I couldn't. I've got, I had two, you know, had two children. I had no money either. 
I wanted to run. I had no money to sort of set up a new home and start again. But I also didn't know how, I couldn't even fathom what that would mean. But also it was more than setting up a new home. There's a bit in the book when, because for for listeners, uh, Stacey married a long time after she was, so you've been with your partner about eight years when you got married, is that right? Yeah. Eight years? Um, you know, so there's a the bit of the book when you just kind of say you're walking down the aisle, like walking the plank. Mm. And it's like, oh, stab. So it was, it had all gone to, it was tits up, your therapist would say. <laughs> it was already. Shaky. There's a lot going on before the bomb goes off. I remember during that period, I, I mean, I don't know if it's possible to have had a nervous breakdown for a sum total of six years, but, yeah. a, you know, it is, is it? I do I'm feel sure it. Is. I look back and I think, uh, I describe it as auto being on autopilot in the book prior to my therapy, but I just remember we changed the date so many times. I, neither of us really believe in marriage. We, You know, his mum second marriage his dad third marriage my mom is on her third like what's the point so much admin and I can't even and money cancel tax bill on time like you know there we were kind of performers actors on in our own lives not but not communicating and not talking and not doing anything but sort of existing side by side and you're right he was my safe harbor my ocean liner but yeah, he was more than a life raft, but quite cleverly, a friend of mine pointed out the other day, which I hadn't thought about really. She said he could have been anyone. So I needed, it wasn't about him per se. It was what I needed to hold on to, even in the the relationship for those first years together. I mean, I was very happy in the first year we were together, but even right in the beginning of our relationship, I was still lonely inside my own skin and I had assumed that loneliness would go, mm. but it never went. And it was as if I could never escape myself. I'd make decisions based upon, you know, I was, it's almost like, like I was a child. I was like in a childlike state. I was in kind of some sort of arrested development and there is a word for it. Um, and I cannot remember it for the life of me, but my therapist has essentially over five years played the role of my mother and I've had mm. to go from this child state and develop into adulthood. And I swear that really I dealt with things in quite a childlike way Mm. before therapy, whether it was a kind of, um, I I talk, I don't know if you read the, did you read the, um, because it's in sort of essays. So it's, you know, it's like, but there was, did you read the one about where I have the meltdown about someone asking me to file copy by three o'clock? And I was like, yeah. You perceive that as rejection in rejection, a weird way. Rejection. How odd to find myself working in fashion with, you know, one of the most brutal industries. Oh God, it's ever. all about rejection. Yeah. Just never good enough, never thin enough. Never, ever. Never posh enough, no, never whatever no, enough. No, exactly. In terms of walking the plank that day, as I described the aisle, it, it really felt as though it was like a wake up moment. Is it? You know, is this actually happening? Am I doing this? Mm. Of course I was. And then it went to shit on the honeymoon. The whole thing collapsed in front of my eyes. Us, everything. And we should never have got married. And we should have been in couples therapy from three years before we we decided to get married. But I needed and I wanted the security. And I loved him. But I was lonely. In the relationship, I, it's really hard to describe, isn't it? Because I loved him like, I can't even say, like, not like a friend, not like a family member, like he was this essential part of myself that I couldn't mm-hmm. leave. He was, it was like this, because I've done so much work on myself, I would never enter into a relationship like that ever again. He represented something that was lacking in myself, but actually, of course, he could never, ever provide that. Mm-hmm. So we were always doomed. It would all, you know, unless I had gone into intense therapy and then we would have had couples therapy, it was always going to be a bomb at some point. It's like, and this is the, this is the product of two people who've had therapy talking, (laughs) but it's like, you can't make your home in someone else. No. And when you've had 
either, you know, a difficult childhood or a difficult relationship in your teens or or whatever, it's tempting to, well, kind of constantly do that. Well, you put in the book, you put it down to two things that I want to talk about both and I can't work out how to get them both in. Um, the kind of, that kind of disnification of life mm. that little girls in particular, I think are still subject to, but certainly were subject to in the 70s and 80s. But also your dad's. I start the book with this, you know, yeah, this kind of uh, narrative that they, I internalised and many women do. And still do, by the way, because I have asked 18-year-olds, you know, this idea that the prince will come. We all know the tropes, right? If print, you'll marry your prince and everything, you'll live happily ever after with you know, however many children and an array of small tweeting animals following your, uh, I don't know, what would I be wearing? Phoebe Philo's new collection, a long gown designed by Phoebe Philo. Yeah, of course you would, like, yeah. I mean, anyway, but I also think that, those books and that narrative was an escape route for me from working class Manchester. I was born in a place called Ashton Underline, which is just outside of Manchester, which is where there is a lot that's high unemployment. You know, it was really affected by things such as the coal miners' strike and the coal mines being closed down. You know, a thousand mines a week closed down by our friend Thatcher, although apparently Labour started it before her. And obviously the Industrial Revolution brought so much cash into the area and now nothing's made up there. So you're talking about fourth generation, fifth generation on benefits. It's a rough, rough part of the world. And actually, I met someone recently and they said, where were we born? I said, Ashton. And they went, in Ashton Hospital and you're still alive. That's yeah. <laughs> not funny, but I was like, yes. Yeah. And, you know, my mom and my grandmother and my great-grandmother all worked in cigarette factory. The same cigarette factory it was called Patrios, pa- Patrios, I talk like that, Patrios. <laughs> and Patrios employed everybody in the area, the cigarette factory. You know, money was tight. And these stories, these fairy tales, these fantasies, why not slip into them? Why not head that way? Mm. And I think it's one of the reasons I loved clothes and fashion because it provides the instant fantasy doesn't it you know you put it's you know it's well used um metaphor but you can put on a dress and you can be anybody so this disnification yeah sure we all inhale it to use your word in our childhood for various reasons some people don't i mean there were no books in my house there was one book it was a book on deep sea fish which i was obsessed by and that was kind of it my parents didn't read they didn't go to university working class you know, and I know people describe themselves as working class when they're, and they themselves are second generation because their parents went to university. But, you know, when your parents don't, don't go to university and like, no. there's no, there's no map, there's no model to follow because they've just, you know, been working their arses off. My mum worked in a till in a supermarket at night, which is where she met my stepfather. So yeah, the disnification of, you know, childhood stories, it became my kind of, oh yeah, it's fine because I will meet a man and he will be my savior. And you collide that with a father who wasn't there. And then really, you know, I internalize a lot about money with that relationship because he allegedly didn't pay child support. I mean, we left with, yes, I was three and we had two carrier bags, one for her, one for me. And we went to live with my grandparents, got on the bus. And she allegedly had a black eye and off we went. I was delusional because it was easier to be delusional than face into the reality of actually your dad is a bit crap. He's mm. never, he's never going to be your real, you know, he's not going to really step up as a dad. You can go to the shows and wear all the pretty dresses you like, but Prince Charming <laughs> still won't come on as, you know, pop on, you know, pop to Milan, fashion week on a stallion. And I always mm. had this fantasy sound that I would be sitting in a cafe in Italy <laughs> and this like sort of good looking suave guy would sort of come into the cafe. He'd be sipping espresso. I mean, we didn't even have time to have an espresso, did we? No, I was going to say, when did you get this time to go into and sit in a cafe? Can you pinpoint the, the point you stopped thinking Prince Charming was going to come? Yeah, two years ago in therapy. Because so that was interesting, still, isn't it? 
looking for him. Yeah, there's that, this line where you, you say, and I think it was going to resonate with so many people and totally resonated with me. Like, by the time I was eight, I subconsciously knew I had to be beautiful, slim, passive, and most importantly, quiet. Oh, and young forever. It's like, how, how are you doing with young forever? Do you know what is so liberating about having gone through such a, well, such a crap five years and, you know, survived to literally tell the tale is that I am okay with that stuff now. I was, ne- I, you know, I, I had, a, so working on L, I started having, you get free stuff. Yeah, you get free stuff. You don't get paid particularly well, but you get free shit. And a lot of that free shit would be, you know, a bit of Botox here and a bit of this there, whatever. So how old were you when you started that? Huh? How old were you when you 30? I was 30. You just don't need it at 30. How bonkers. No, what do they call it? Is it preemptive? Yeah. I remember, it's like, what? My last sort of foray into Botox, when I realised I actually couldn't express myself fully in any way, (laughs) unless I start, like, you know, miming using my arms and kind of like I don't know like or doing it like silent movie like Charlie Chaplin just running around like it's ridiculous you can't move your face and just feel like you're hot I felt like I was half a person but also by the way there is nothing nothing just I'm not saying that it's a bad thing I'm saying that it's a choice thing of course I may well have a little squish in the center of my eyebrows at some point again but I'm talking about I'm talking yeah. about too much for me and a squish here and there. Fine. But this was like, so the last time I did that, you know, it was so fun. I was thinking about this just yesterday. This doctor, it was another free shit moment was recording it. And he was, I think I was a demo model or something, which is why I had way too much in my face. And he turned to them, his little audience and said, and I was 39 by the way, or 40. He said, well, this is a classic example of hotness syndrome. She was once hot, but she now is not. Fuck. <laughs> and I lay there and I took that. Hot, what, what, fuck off. And I look at my face now, 10 years later, and I am so happy because it's not just about my face. I've rediscovered hobbies that I hadn't, you know, I paint again. I paint far too long into the night. I'm about to start a master's at St. Martin's. I didn't finish my art school education because of, um, well, I mean, I basically went off the rails for my whole of my twenties as a reaction to not dealing with the stuff in childhood, probably, but all sorts of things, discovering, you know, ecstasy and raves and all of that. So it was quite a, you know, a difficult period, actually. Who ever thought that sending me off to university, well, it was a poly at that time, mm-hmm. 1992, was a good idea. I'd already spent my student loan on the Vivian Westwood catsuit. Like, <laughs> for God's sake, really? <laughs> I did art school for one year, and actually, I don't have many regrets in my life, but that is one is dropping out of art school and finding myself absolutely, you know, just sort of free-falling, and I started a nightclub in Edinburgh. But anyway, back to the aging thing, getting older, whatever, however we're calling it, whatever we're calling it, growing older, whatever. I'm so much happier because I have, there's so much more than, you know, I think we fall into the trap, don't we? That we are valued by the external and my internal world, my inner world is is so rich now. I'm no longer lonely in my own skin. And that is fucking huge. You're very good at hiding the serious stuff in the gags. (laughs) It's when you're talking to the therapist and you talk about yeah, where you on, basically say, I'm older and I'm single. And whenever I try to imagine myself even older than I am today, all I see is this lonely figure sitting uh, yeah. at a small kitchen table. It's like, yeah, that was actually, oh, God, I've forgotten about that bit. Sorry. Selective memory, eh? Yeah, best thing. Remember the funnies? That was actually a really horrible set. I mean, there have been many horrible sessions, but that particular session was I was in the middle of trying to buy this house which took a long time the woman I bought the house of she was she was also single and I think she's possibly not more than 10 years older than me 
she lived here alone. She had, it had been her marital home, brought up two boys here. I remember her coming to the door one day and she was in a dressing gown and she'd had some things, she'd had her tooth operated on. And I just needed to, because the whole thing took a year because she waited for me because I was the only person who came through the door and didn't say, I'm going to rip it all out and then put this sort of glass box, like everyone has done around in Kensal Rise. Like, I didn't have the money to do that, but also like, I don't, you know, I don't care for that particular Pinterest board. But I came around one day to measure something and she came to the front door wearing this dressing gown. She'd just had an operation on her tooth. And I ended up hugging her because she looked like she was in so much pain. She'd been, you know, if you've ever had a sore tooth, like horrendous pain. And she'd been up all night and I, I could see that she needed to be looked after, but there was nobody there to look after her. There was nobody beside her in bed to just, you know, roll over to or outstretch your arm. Or In that moment, I felt that we were both as alone as one another. And then I, I, I just carried that with me for quite a long time. And then I imagined myself to be her in 10 years time, having had, you know, insert name of operation and being in agony and having no one here to help me out. And it's a scary, scary thought, but it, it could happen. I would, now I've, I've worked through, I'm lucky enough to have found a therapist that has been able to work with me this long without, without abandoning me, no, without, <laughs> without me quitting actually, because yeah. my God, it's hard to turn up to her door every week, but being able to work through those feelings of, but it's okay if you're on your own at a kitchen table, that's not such a bad thing. And actually I am able, I'm now able to be on my own at that, at my not small kitchen table because I have two kids and I really enjoy it. And I sit at my kitchen table and I paint. And I write. So I could be that woman that I envisage, but I actually don't feel lonely. And I think coming into the house and meeting her, the previous owner, and having that moment with her where I, where I hugged her just made me think, gosh, life just doesn't turn out as we think sometimes. If we think it, or we'll hope it might. And maybe you're on your own one day in a dressing gown in a lot of pain and no one's there to help you. But that's life. And maybe that's better than someone being there that you'd rather not? Do you feel like that now? Oh, Sam, honestly, if I could have gone back, I would have a million times. And it's only in the last year that I felt strong enough within to say, actually, there was a reason you left. There was a reason you couldn't see yourself and yourselves growing old together. There was a reason for all of it. And I have actually stopped the self-blame because that's the other thing about having the same therapist for five years is that I've got someone who can check my self-blame. Oh, but when you said four years ago, X, Y, Z, you know, with, you know, I remember describing to her, we'd sit, we'd go for dinner and we'd sit in silence. I mean, I've never wanted to be in a couple where we sit at dinner in complete silence. It is, and you see people like that in restaurants, don't you? Like, All the time, oh, yeah. That's the thing, you know, the, the decision-making around divorce is actually really hard because there's so much to weigh up. There's your future self, there's the future self you thought you would be, there's the family, there's all of the kind of, you know, the childhood, you know, Disney narrative, oh, it'll be perfect. And then you feel like a failure because this is the bit that you're supposed to be really good at. Oh, I'm, I, why can't I stick it out? Or, or you just can't afford to leave. There's so many things. Mm-hmm. And when you make the decision that actually I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave, things that you haven't thought of, such as the lonely women sitting at the kitchen table, when they come into your mind, because obviously I'd left at that point, I think I was living in my third rental, rented accommodation. It's removed so much. It was horrible. When that came into my mind, it was as if like there was another, you know, huge wave in the sea and I was drowning again. Because of course, now I can rationally say I would rather be that woman at my kitchen table, age 70 alone, than have spent the last 25 years on, in an unhappy marriage where I feel 
even more alone. But in that moment, when I had that vision and that realization, it was devastating because there are so many things that just keep the emotions kept rolling just as, you know, you pick yourself up. Okay, I'm fine. Boom. It's like being knocked out by a heavyweight champion. They come at you again in the ring and you're down. You're like, I can't get up again. I can't get up again. And it's just an ever, never ending sort of tsunami of grief. Mm. It's fucking terrible. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. What do you think, what part, if any, do you think perimenopause played in all of this? Upheaval. Yeah, sorry. Quite a lot. Now, I'm not a doctor. Thank (laughs) God. I have no scientific backing. So forgive me for just waffling here a bit because none of this is proven. I think there is a, well, we know there is a huge change in our hormones as we reach perimenopause, as we enter perimenopause. And I think in my I can only talk from my personal experience. I felt that there was one last hurrah. And that last hurrah, which is a kind of sort of a diminishing way to describe it because it's, it's actually, it's, it's way more, um, it's sort of way more almost like life threatening than that. It's like, okay, my, my ovaries are popping out huge eggs and I can just feel my boom. Boom. Come on. One more baby. Let's go. Let's go. And with that, I had a heightened libido. The perimenopause also made me consider next chapter. And what does that look like? And when you're in perimenopause, unless you've had an early menopause, you tend to be around 45. And at that age, you've still, you've got a lot of life to live, but you're over halfway. And if you're going to live to 90 of course but you know you're oh, most Probably, of us yeah. that is a real existential reckoning and you're like all right so let's break this down what does it look like and I had kids you know not late I suppose compared to what you know it's pretty much the norm now but at 40 I had a one-year-old and a three-year-old so you know do the maths on that they're at school I don't have to put their pants on them anymore. I don't have to wipe their bottoms and I don't have to clean their teeth. And so there's a lot of freedom that comes with that. And I get a lot of time back. So you've got a collision of hormones, the eggs popping, the body going on last hurrah, and increased libido, children who are slowly, slowly growing up. Yeah, it had a lot to do with, do I stay or do I go? And if I stay, do I go when their kids are 18 or do I stay for the long run and this is just it? Or do I go and go now? And when I say last hurrah, 
that last hurrah felt to me like the most important thing on the planet. It was all consuming. And it was as if my entire being, it was visceral. Like, Well, it's the rest of your life, isn't it? Yeah. Well, scientifically speaking, without any data to prove it, I've spoken to quite a lot of women. Well, rather, they've spoken to me because I get a lot of messages on my Instagram. Directly. You'll get even more when the book comes out. And they talk to me about their split, their divorce, their separation. And they talk to me about their very funny sexual adventures, six months post-separation, which have howl, which is all I'm convinced to do with this last hurrah, this, you know, Mm. go for it. And there's a, you know, if you do go for it and you're 45 and you suddenly find yourself going from a kind of floral midi dress to a, a micro mini skirt, you know, sorry, cliche, but that's what happened to me. Bonkers. I never saw that coming on earth. But the story yesterday someone told me was she'd ended up in a foursome. Uh, she just left her husband, ended up in a foursome. The foursome, you know, they all sort of did what they had to do. Can't imagine that, quite frankly. But anyway, they did that. And then the other couple, she wasn't with a couple. There was a random guy, her and a couple. She ended up giving marriage counselling to the couple. She just (laughs) (laughs) couldn't make it up. It's like your, I mean, your book is full of like horror stories about midlife dating and dating apps and sleazy men and about the good stuff because you have had a midlife sexual awakening, haven't you? And that's, yeah, frankly, that's what everyone wants to hear. Everyone wants to hear that it's, it's going to come good. Literally, um, sorry, that was totally unintentional. <laughs> Happy ending. <laughs> um, again, sorry to be a bore. Thanks to therapy. I have this idea, like, you know, before therapy, I didn't know who I was. Post-therapy, I do. But if if you don't know who you are, how can you know what you want? Yeah. So now I know who I am. I know what I want. I mean, I'd often just find myself lying there like a sex doll with rigor mortis. Or like mm. playing the part of an actress, like almost like an acrobat. Like, oh, these are the tricks I'm supposed to do, right? But not really feeling it. I'm talking about sexual encounters in my 20s and 30s, you know, which were performative. The stuff that I thought I was meant to be doing, I didn't enjoy it. I certainly didn't orgasm. But when, you know, recently, as I've got to know myself, I know what it is that turns me on and I know what it is I like. Couple that with HRT which for some women can increase their libido and it has with me. It's just made me feel better. It's made me feel better in terms of I'm calmer. Gosh, too much information. Just No everything. such thing. Is it not? No, okay. No, juicier, no. juicier, juicier down there. Oh my God, that's not fair. <laughs> I am. And it's HRT. Oh, and oh, I need to know more about this particular HRT you're on extra gel and that's why I call it an awakening because having experienced it I'm like okay that's that's what it should have been I get it now I'd actually probably the completely wrong time to bring out my mother but I'm going to um <laughs> segues from juicy vagina into her mother uh she and I also have a better relationship yeah because of my therapy but also you know happiness within and contentment within and bit of HMT and whatever, whatever it is, whatever the blend. So two oh, weeks before I had been to see my mom and it was always really difficult between us. I felt really uncomfortable around her. She felt uncomfortable around me. We just, we loved each other, but we tried really hard to love one another, but there was an intolerance and a lot of unspoken shit that is in the book. And I, you know, left home at 17 and uh, all sorts of stuff. So it was all of this unspoken mess. And then she said something about a friend's daughter who at the time was 15 and I exploded. And her, my mum's husband looked at me and looked at her and I said, you know what, leave the kitchen and close the door. And I thought, it's now or never. I clear the air and we've been at it. Good God. Four hours, there was awful language used Mm. there was a lot of tears so much honesty and truth the following morning when we said good night we sort of 
just, you know, good night. I woke up, I opened my eyes. I was horrifically hungover. I, the kids were really little and I thought either we are going to fix this from this point onwards or it's done and I'll never see her again. And I posed this question to her the next morning and she said, no, we'll fix this. Now, because of, you know, going through a lot of my childhood stuff with, with my therapist, I've learned a lot of forgiveness. And also, you know, I understand her. She was, a, she was broke. I forgive her. And it's such a relief. It's like you, there's a, a just like a one tiny comment in the book, partly because of, you know, knowing you before when you and your mum didn't get on. It's, um, and you, you talk about her three marriages. And you kind of, and then you just go, it was survival. Yeah. And I just thought, wow, because it was, because, you mm. know, I mean, for so many women still now, but certainly back then, mm. you know, marriage was how women survived. They kind of had to. And, you know, I think your mum, after the first one, did a lot, you know, better <laughs> the second two times. But it's like, I just thought that showed... I don't know. Yeah, forgiveness, understanding. We don't think about that, do we? But I've just finished um, Maggie O'Farrell's The Marriage Portrait. It's brilliant, isn't it? Oh, my God. What a masterpiece. You know, women had to get married. We were, well, especially women of a certain standing, royalty, were equity. It was a way out. It was a job and it was survival. It was literal survival. I mean, so many unmarried women in history ended up being burned at the stake, didn't they? Yeah, there is. Um, you've thrown your mum in the middle of my nicely planned, like, segue. So there is no, no way, no clever, funny way for me to segue from your mum to toyboywarehouse.com. <laughs> so, so tell me. Sorry, you're choking. A of coffee. Thank you. It's got to be oh, really cold. Oh, actually. I can bring my mum into this conversation because I was <laughs> telling my mum about it with my auntie Tina. I'm like, she's not my real auntie, but she was my dinner lady. She was the dinner lady at school. Her and my mum are really good mates. And she was like, toybywarehouse.com. And my mum rang. She said, your auntie Tina wants that website address. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, she'll do so well on it. Do you know what? Toyboy Warehouse, what a name. It makes me giggle. I mean, it's like pets. I just assumed you'd made it up, yeah. It's an actual site. And it's a bit tragic, actually, because, you know, I was only on there for like 48 hours, but, you know, cubs looking for cougars. You know, I'll, 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 lick, your, I'll lick your pussy all day if you pay my rent. I'm like, oh, God. Oh, no. Oh, God. Sugar mummy. Awful. Anyway, sorry for that visual. But uh, yeah, I went on as a bit of a joke and there we are, sexual awakening. I met a really lovely man who only dates older women. He's not that much younger than you, is he? He's 13 years younger. He's 36 now. Yeah, that's not that much younger. It's more the same age. Well, it's more or less the same age difference that I have with John and nobody Mm. bats an eyelid. But the other way around, it's sort of... Yeah. You know? So you were obviously actively looking for a younger bloke. No, I was actively looking for no strings attached sex. Like, you know, the gay equivalent, I have been told, is a website called Grinder, which is a hookup yes, yes. site for gay men. There is sort of nothing similar for heterosexuals, but there are a couple of sites, but it's all so obvious. It's very, um, it's just kind of dirty. Maybe it just kind of feels horrible. Like, you know, it's too obvious. So I tried this website out. And I met someone really nice. And I, I do know a couple of people who have got married on this website. And it's not all sleaze, but you have to really pick through it. But I didn't have to. I met him within 24, 48 hours. And then I was off the site because I couldn't bear it. I had like 500 messages. I get no messages on Hinge. <laughs> no one wants to be on Hinge. I think it's really interesting that you've met this younger guy and you're really happy mm. and you're really happy in yourself and you're really. And, you know, you've had your sexual awakening, as we're calling it, Um, because so many women I talk to, not all, but very many who have broken up with their long term partners and are single at this point or back out there. They all say 
firstly, that the best sex they've had has been with younger men, mm. but also that they feel so much more comfortable with younger men. Yes. Okay, so we can talk about the perimenopause and this hormonal change, but I don't know much about what happens to men in midlife. I mean, I've heard that testosterone drops. Don't know. Not doctor. I haven't read about it. I shall go and read about it. The men that I've met seem to either be complete and utter narcissists or lacked confidence in themselves. Like they'd had, like divorce had really battered the wind out of them. Divorce does. Divorce does. But you get back up and you put on your best, your show face, right? And you go on a date. It's like, okay. But a lot of them, a lot of them, I don't like to generalize. I really don't. I'm not talking about all middle-aged men at all. But the men that I met, some of them, quite a lot of them, seemed deflated and just a bit done in by life. And younger men come without that, usually come without that complexity. And I wonder if it's a generational thing as well. Like, I wonder if it's a Gen X thing, you know, uh, maybe this new millennial. I mean, they, they don't want kids either, these younger people. A lot of young mm. people don't want kids. He, you know, my, uh, my lover doesn't want children. And a lot of his friends aren't having kids. So actually, it's this, it's, it's, which sounds a bit Peter Pan, and it's not, they're mature, you know, they've got their careers, but it is slightly, it's like the alternative, right? It's sort of, you know, they can be nomadic, they can, they can live in wherever, and we're talking about, you know, people who do certain jobs, of course, not mm. doctors, but he's, he happens to be um, in fashion, he's a stylist, and a lots, lots of their friends of you know, they live all over the world. They live, you know, some live in Brittany, some live in Paris, some live in Greece, like, and they're just a very interesting bunch of people. And I really have enjoyed meeting them. I've met people that don't live the kind of life that I have grown up believing was the life we should have. And that's mm-hmm. it's opened my mind to my own, my future and my life. Like, oh, I'm learning Spanish. I might end up living in Spain. In fact, I probably will end up living in Spain where, by the way, it is honestly breaks my heart. The way they care for their elders, their older people, is unbelievably tender. And it's a very different culture from here. Um, but meeting someone from France and meeting him, his friends, it's much more kind of international set of people. It's been really joyful, actually, at this age. And you no longer feel too much or not enough? Oh, Sam, don't make me cry. (laughs) Oh, I didn't mean to make you cry. Yes, I will always feel like that. Oh, no. Always. Oh, but that's sad because, I mean, objectively, from outside, Mm. you've always been... I mean, too much is levelled at so many women. Yes, Feeling and not enough. Yeah. Often, but I think, you've always been more than enough. And I would, at this point, with everything you've achieved, you really are. I think that it will take many more generations to break the idea of women being too much. It's been a very difficult week being in the press. Um, the Times uh, serialization was a real focus on you know, sex and middle age and all the rest of it. When the book is about, um, and listen, I'm not saying that that was an opening piece. And now I really want to talk about the rest of the book in the press and the interviews that I give. And I've just given an interview this morning about um, women and money. Being too much really like strikes through my heart because I always check myself am I too much? Am I being too much? I walk in a room, am I being too much? Am I about to be too much? I don't know whether that's being a neurodivergent woman because my daughter, I see that she has a bit of this going on too. In fact, I only noticed my own too muchness when I go into a room of people that I know kind of well, but not like, you know, like I went, I was invited to an old neighbor's party and I didn't really know anyone. I'd met them a couple of times and I watched my little girl, who's now 10, she was nine at the time. She walked towards the door and she said, she went like this, I'm now putting my hands over my face. She went, don't be weird. 
Oh. I was standing behind her and I thought, oh my God, oh my God, that's what I, that's me. Don't be weird. Don't be too much. Don't say outrageous things. But I've always been like that. And I always, not with the intention of upsetting people, but I have always been just a bit too much. But by whose standard? By, by what? Yeah, who says? Maybe they're and not I, enough, I, you know? Women are always too much. Or women who speak out or dare to go back to the workplace in their 50s or, you know, you know, the kind of Madonna, like too much, too much, too much. Why do we grow up feeling like if we have a voice or we want to use our voice that we're too much? What the fuck? And it really hurts because I check myself every day. Am I being too much? I think it's a shame because I think a lot of little girls are, as we speak, internalizing the same thing. So much has changed and so much hasn't. That is how I always feel because I've always felt like I looked weird and I've never been, as you know, very good at like fitting in and making friends. And so, yeah, that don't be weird. I really identify with that. But I know so many people with jobs vaguely in the public eye, whether it's like promoting a book or whatever, who put themselves on before they leave the house. And I do that. You know, I kind of become a different person to go to work. And it's interesting interviewing actually for the podcast, somebody I properly know because I'm, I'm wondering whether I'm going to be different sound different because you haven't put on your show face yes yeah because I haven't so gone don't be weird before I turn the mic off <laughs> because we're the two weirdos together <laughs> yes and you're always in safe weird space yeah um, I rarely do this but I'm going to give the book a massive plug because we haven't talked about all Stacey's embarrassing sex, sexual encounters, which are well worth reading. We haven't talked about um, your ADHD diagnosis in your late 40s, which I think is so massive and so integral to your experience. But also, I think there are so many women who just weren't diagnosed because it was a naughty little boy thing. Mm-hmm. We haven't talked about money, which is massive. And I desperately want to, in fact, I'm going to, even though we're well out of time. How did you end up only owning 4.6% of your house? How did that happen? Because of my lack of self-worth. I didn't believe that that little girl from Ashton underlying believed that she shouldn't be in that house. And actually, I realized that actually, if we had been equal partners, we'd have been in a small flat and that would have been okay because we'd have been equal partners, but we weren't equal partners because how could I possibly match with my job? And never, you know, we're not, I don't, I've never earned loads of money. It's not be my, no, no, it's not. That's fashion for you. No. So that's, uh, it was, um, it's like a sense of shame, a sense of guilt, a sense of embarrassment, lack of communication and inability to communicate for the fear of rejection. Because if I told him, no, I should be 50-50. This should be 50-50. We have, we have one, we had one child at that point. Uh, I had very bad postnatal depression, which is in the book, um, in the section called, uh, which was in motherhood, but it, the chapter is called hide the knives and it's quite brutal. Um, and I was very sick. And so I went through all of that during that period. And so, yeah, I owned 4.6% of the house. Yes. Just, like I mean that would never happen to me again it's a whole other conversation maybe one we should have maybe we should do it maybe maybe we'll do a money special um yeah it's I was so gobsmacked when Mm. I read that so gobsmacked and I think I think more women than would admit it find themselves in similar maybe not quite so radical but similar situations so many women who whether they opted to or not, but they were the lower earners, say, I'm generalizing, obviously. So they stayed at home with the children, which is, you know, as we all know, unpaid work. Then they got up, they dropped off their careers, and then they sort of lost confidence, perhaps, and they're unable to go into the workplace because they've had five years out. They have no, they can't leave, can't leave their marriages. They can't be the one making any decisions. Financial freedom is a woman's only freedom. What would you, from where you are now, 
what would you say to 45-year-old Stacy sitting in the first rental, which you affectionately called the crack den, wondering what the fuck she'd done? Well, I'd say to her, first of all, I'd say to her, if she's on day one, give the keys back to the estate agent and tell him to go fuck off. Get the deposit <laughs> yeah. back, go back to the marital home, have a word with your ex, sit and do a spreadsheet together and figure this out calmly and rationally. You're not on the run. If I couldn't say that and it wasn't day one and she was living there, I would say to her, you're going to have to go through a whole pile of shit, my friend. And at the end of it, you will survive because you have to survive, even though there were times when I thought I didn't want to carry on. And I am on um, antidepressants. I eventually went on them because actually I, I had to, I've got two kids. There was no choice. I had to live. So I went on the antidepressants and they provided a, a gentle buffer. And what I would love to say to her during this really, really rough patch, two years of hell, I'd say, you're going to go through so much shit. But at the end of it, honestly, this sounds like a cliche, but you will not recognize yourself because you'll be rebuilt, re-scaffolded within. And that roof, that, that roof that you've never really had, I described myself in the last few pages as a house without a roof, you'll rebuild it. Your, with your own, in, in your own way, in your own time. Because you are, like you said at the beginning, your own, you have to be at home within yourself. What is it you said? You can't. Uh, I can't remember. I think said something like you can't make your home in someone else. That's right. I love that. You can't make your home in someone else. You have to make it within yourself. That's what I tell her. And I tell her you're going to do it. With sheer grit and resilience, you will do it. And you'll be okay. In fact, and this is probably, this first question is actually probably going to be a bit tricky. What's your emotional age? Ah, that's so good. (laughs) Sam Baker. It oscillates between 12, 34 and 78. (laughs) That's probably pretty healthy. Why 78? I just can see myself after doing my master's at St. Martin's and just, I'm not dead, uh, painting and being happy. The 12-year-old is rediscovering joy. And the 34-year-old was really when I I felt sort of, I felt this glimmer of like confidence at 34. I remember like, oh, I'm no longer a kid. I'm not, I'm a woman now. I remember that feeling thinking, oh, I quite like this. Give us a book recommendation. Deborah Levy is just August blue. I'm in the middle of. Oh God! I mean, real estate. Just I read that last summer, and it it really changed things for me. The way I viewed myself and my role within sort of the wider culture, yes, but also within relationships. Mm. It's just a genius. It's real estate. A good book. I kind of think. I don't know, everybody should get put through your door when you're 45 or something. Yeah. What advice would you give younger women? Stop and think. Use your, if you could just take a pause and a beat before opening your mouth at work, in a relationship, to your children, to whomever, just take a breath. And taking a breath is something I've had to learn in later life because I was so eager to please I would just think if I don't answer this question immediately they're going to think I'm stupid if I don't get back to that person immediately they'll think I'm rude or and so on and so forth take a breath think engage your brain and I mean that kindly and think about what it is you're about to do whether that's walking the plank I mean aisle aisle whether it's a financial decision just take a breath. Your whole life doesn't have to be made in one a one-second decision. Who's your old bird role model? <laughs> I just love Jane Fonda. She makes me howl. I love how kind of unapologetic she is about you know her surgeries and she's kind of refreshing for that generation. What's your superpower? Apart from talking to spirits and talking to dead people. <laughs> <laughs> um, my superpower 
is my creativity. I love that you've rediscovered that. Mm. Not that you ever lost it, but that you've... No, I did lose it. ...rediscovered your 17-year-old art college. When do you start? October. And I'm not the oldest on the course. There are... Is a late six, someone in their late sixties and someone in their seventies? It'd be brilliant. How was that? It's brilliant. Last one. How many fucks do you give? That's a really hard question this week because I really gave a fuck this week about so many things about feeling so vulnerable, and and then I just go back to giving zero fucks because I have to. Otherwise, you wouldn't get out of bed. I give a lot of fucks and then I give zero, all in the same. 30 seconds all day long thank you Stace thank you for being so you thank you Sam thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode you might like my conversations with Rosie Green and Natalie Lee you'll find a link to them in the show notes you can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts if you like what you hear please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. If you'd like more of The Shift in your life, head over to theshiftwithsambaker.substack.com and sign up for weekly newsletters, podcast extras and more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., <laughs>